Good afternoon, and thank you all for coming. So uh, I'm Michael, and I'm going to be talking about the Norwich Cricket Week from its first inception in 1881 to the turn of the century, which, uh, as I'm sure most of you know, is still going as the Norfolk Cricket Festival today at Horsford. Uh, as I'm sure that a lot of you probably know more about the county side and indeed the week than I do, I've uh, hoped to look at it from somewhat of a different angle. So I'm mostly looking at the contemporary perception of the festival, uh, mostly drawn from newspaper sources, and this is the time for the obligatory plug of our services. Most of these are drawn from our own newspaper collections and from the British Newspaper Archive. And essentially, what I'm hoping to convince you all is the case today is that the cricketing public of Norfolk when it started, saw the week as something to further Norfolk's ambitions of first-class status. <coughs> but as time went on, well, hopefully we'll show you what that changed into. <laughs> so uh, I'll jump straight in and say, firstly, I think why it's worth talking about the history of the festival and why it's such an interesting part of the club's history. Firstly, in my opinion, it's quite unique for uh, such a large county town to have a festival as uh, where I come from, the county. Well, unfortunately, this is the second reason. Most counties now don't take uh, games abroad and have festivals uh, due to scheduling constraints and maximising revenue at the main county ground. So I think it's very important that we understand where these, where these festivals come from. And, well, and that is my point there. <laughs> so yeah, uh, starting off with the beginning of the festival in 1881, uh, apologies for the history that you all probably already know, but four years after the county club, as it currently constituted, was formed, 14 years before it became one of the members of the Minor County Championship in its first form. Uh, the week uh, of the bank holiday in uh, August in 1881 was uh, attended by over a thousand spectators, seeing the uh, first use of the pavilion built by Mr Rogers in the grounds donated by Coleman to the club for this use. And I think coming when it does, it's quite important because it's one of the, uh, the first sort of purpose-built festivals, but in kind of a series of high-profile matches hosted in one location outside of the major clubs. I think that we can um, trace back the start of these festivals to uh, the Cheltenham Festival in the uh, early to mid-1870s when Gloucestershire were the preeminent county side. And I think that Norfolk holding one of these festivals themselves really shows their ambition to be considered a club with the kind of the ability to put on something of interest, a spectacle and the organisational capability. And especially in the context of that time when the county clubs were moving towards a more structured approach to the, the regular season. I think in the time just before that it showed that the club Kind of had the ambition to be considered as one that was worthy of playing the first class sides and uh as we can see 1881 i mean that's only five years after yorkshire had the scarborough festival which was the springboard for the redevelopment of the ground and their later success in the next decade and and <laughs> uh, a large part of I think the festival was really propelling cricket to the forefront of Norfolk. Uh, as you can see from a lot of the uh, press releases of the time, it's hyped as a grand cricket week, and there is uh, a lot of talk, particularly in the evening news of the EDP, which 
really are the only papers to feature much press for the first week. That cricket in the county has kind of fallen in the wayside over the last couple of decades. The interest <coughs> has been waning aside from the village game. So I think that they hope to perhaps emulate what the larger clubs like Yorkshire have done in attracting people like John Woodall to fund the club and really allow them to improve the facilities and hire better qualities of professional players. And I think that we can see there is, in the first few years, a lot of evidence in the press releases that really the whole point of the week is to further the county club's ambition as a first-class side. Uh, because the actual quality of cricket on the pitch is noted uh, as far as London, the London Evening News has a special uh, feature about the week stating that each match has shown that thoroughly good cricket is played in the county. It's hoped that judging by the excellent cricket shown by the team, considerable improvement may shortly be noticed in the position of the county 11 and indeed the local papers repeatedly praise the high quality of the cricket played. Uh, so much so that when the MCC were beaten by 10 wickets in the closing game of the festival, which drew over 1,500 spectators, the Thetford and Watton Times only had to complain that several Norfolk gentlemen had opted to play for the London club, and that next year they hoped they would refrain so, so that a better quality of opposition could be seen for the county side to test them against. And of course, that first festival saw Norwich win all three games, sorry, Norfolk win all three games at Norwich. Uh, at this time, the, the bowling was mainly led by two professional players who'd been employed by the club, which is quite a strong statement of intent. And the festival itself was sold not just as a cricketing display, but as kind of a large scale, almost civic celebration. The carry band was repeatedly publicized as going to be playing uh, on the Monday, the Wednesday, and the Friday, and there they are. As we can see, the, the Grand Week was uh, publicised really from May onwards, at least once a week in all of the major Norwich papers. Unfortunately, this doesn't have them, but um, a lot of the papers also published uh, details of trains that will be specifically running late to take people back to the outlying villages, showing, uh, I do believe in the first one, they had trains to Lynn, Swatham, Beckles, and there was a Cromer. So uh, really, the whole festival was sold, not just kind of as a, a Norwich festival of cricket, but as something that all of Norfolk, and indeed Suffolk enthusiasts, should be excited about. And, as I say, the, the festival was successful is very obvious from the newspapers at the time. Uh, although there's very little publicity outside of Norwich beforehand, afterwards all of the local newspapers have a review of the festival, many of them noticing uh, particularly the good attendances of a thousand plus they estimate on every single day of the, the play. And in particular, the pitch is praised. Uh, Mr. Chadwick, the groundsman, comes in for praise from all of the regional newspapers for the state of the wicket. And yes, aside from the cricket, uh, like the North Norfolk News describes the, uh, the entertainment as splendid, even when 
the weather threatened to turn unfavourable on the Wednesday. So, uh, yes, that was, that was the beginning of the festival. And indeed, I think the sort of sense of optimism that Norfolk is a club perhaps with potential to improve their standing in the county game continues I'd say for the next sort of five or six years or so uh, in light of the first festival in the, the run up to the, nine, the 1882 festival the EDP notes that in the booth of their commentator interest in cricket in Norfolk is at its highest for several decades which I suspect is somewhat a cause and a consequence of the first festival getting people through the gates and indeed, in 1882, Norfolk play the England eleven, which features Arthur Shrewsbury opening the batting, and it's described in all the papers as the strongest side that Norfolk have ever played against. And consequently, when they won by 10 wickets, it was described as the greatest victory in the history of the county club. And really, I think the 1882 <coughs> festival is a big statement of intent by the, the county side. Uh, I'd say as far afield as in Sporting Life and the major London papers, it's described as um, the best cricket ever arranged in Norfolk. And generally, kind of a large step forward for the county side. Uh, it's also noted in the EDP that as the uh, revenue for the MCC game fell over the August bank holiday, that ticket revenues were substantially up on the first year, although unfortunately still running at a loss which is a theme that will continue later on. And uh, like I say, again, this did continue in 1883. The MCC sent a very strong team noted for its batting prowess and spectator numbers for every game at this festival is up by at least 50% to about 1,500. Uh, it's also noted in the EDP that several leading families of the county had attended, which uh, I think shows that the club were at least partway to achieving their ambitions of getting the club noticed and hopefully obtaining some patronage. And uh, yes, in this year they finished with two wins and a draw uh, against what's generally regarded as very strong opposition. And in the review of the week that the EDP published, Messrs Burke, Beck and Jarvis are praised for their dedication in organising the event and end with a hope that it will become a regular fixture in the club's calendar. This continues again into 1884 when there's noted as being a very large and fashionable attendance, which again prompts the Yarmouth Mercury to suggest that interest in cricket in the county is attaining its former levels. Uh, Northampton, one of the strongest minor county sides, sent what is called a fair selection to play, but were unable to avoid another defeat by eight wickets. And indeed, again, Norfolk finish with two wins and a draw in this festival, showing, I think, you know, generally the quality on the pitch. Uh, and as I said earlier, there is kind of a constant underlying theme that the club Although the cricket on the pitch is of excellent quality, the revenues generated by the gates fail to match the expenses. And we can see this in 1885, when the revenues fall to three shillings for a Monday and six shillings for the rest of a week, and a shilling for a place in the seated enclosure, when previously they'd been about double that. There is also 
Uh, the first use of a subscription for members of the cricket club for cheap admittance on any given day. I do believe it is a one shilling for anywhere in an enclosure and six shillings for a seated place, which I think shows that the club were really starting to become concerned with the inability to, uh, to keep the festival to a sufficient standard. Uh, at this point, in their annual review, it's noted that the club has £200 in reserves, but that the gate for this year was only £60, uh, as opposed to £120 cost of organising the matches. So I think we can see here, like the start of the long-term concern that the club wouldn't be able to keep up the high quality of cricket that the week was originally designed to put on. Uh, this doesn't stop from what is perhaps the peak of the club's success in this decade in 1886, when uh, they score at Lords against the MCC 695 in the first innings, uh, and then come back in the following weeks to win all three games at the Norwich Festival. And, uh, I mean, there are effusions of praise from the local press. The uh, EDP says that they hope that within a few years, Norfolk will have firmly established themselves among the first-class counties in the country. And the evening news suggests that there is only one trajectory for Norfolk, and that is upwards. So I think at this time we reach a real peak of this sense of optimism that surrounds the fortunes of the club. And uh, indeed, in 1886, the weather was, I think euphemistically described as very unfa unfavourable, but that there was, from the rough estimates given in the papers, no drop-off in attendances, showing, I think, that the interest that had been generated by the early festivals was being sustained well at this point. So uh, I think it's around 1887 where you could fairly say that we move into kind of the second phase of the, the way that the festival was perceived in its opening years and this period is more defined by a lessening of expectation but a solidifying of the place of the festival within the club's calendar. Because uh, in 1887, despite the success of the previous year, largely the same side uh, finishes with one loss and two draws. And the cricket is largely described as being of a poor quality from the Norfolk side. And the EDP say that this is due to the failure of the club to obtain the services of one or two good professional bowlers, which they believe at the time to be the largest weakness. And I think more importantly shows that as we're moving towards the formation of a, a true county championship that finances and the ability to attract a good number of professional players is becoming more important than perhaps it was ever before in the history of county club cricket. And again this theme continues in 1888, there's an even less positive tone with them noting that the new players blooded in the county side were not of sufficient quality, even though, in their words, the teams facing us were not so strong. We're also reminded that because of the poor state of the club's finances, they were unable to arrange a return match with Essex, who did not think it worth their while, even should they win. Uh, this is a particularly pessimistic piece of journalism, and I get the sense that the commentator for the UDP at the time was not particularly uh, friendly with the club's committee but it does give a good indication of the general tone of the time. Uh, there's a particularly 
telling article. Uh, I'm afraid it's quite blurred, but on the right hand side is from the Yarmouth Mercury, in which uh, they explicitly calls out the club's inability to attract investment from the wealthy of the county to, to keep up with their competitors. The, uh, as we can see, the figures of sort of up £35 for the gate is down on previous years and it seems that even with the ability to keep up spectators they're not attracting sufficient investment to improve the ability of the seat squad to compete <coughs> so uh, I think that what we're seeing this time is just a general lessening of the expectation there was much less talk about Norfolk pushing on to join their, their former peers in the, the first class of county cricket but that isn't necessarily to say that the festival was any less important in the calendar in Norwich. Uh, until the sort of, until in uh, 1890, when the club was formally categorised as third class and the Cricket Council split the counties according to their ability to compete, they were still attracting major sides every year, although perhaps not doing quite so well against them. I, and I think that we can also see around this time that perhaps the festival was helped by a lack of competition from like events in the eastern counties. Uh, it's around 1891 that the East Anglian Daily Times has its first notice for the festival, and indeed that year finishes with a short review of the action. So I think that we can see, and I think again this is partly because of the centrality of Norwich, that the festival is becoming almost a centrepiece for county cricket in the region. So, and I, I think this is where we sort of come into the last decade of the 19th century, because although the teams that come to Norwich after the 1890 division of the clubs is generally weaker, in fact, for three years running, Hertfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire who were all quite weak, I think it's fair to say, third-rate sides at that team made up the visitors to Norwich. Gates didn't drop at all, uh, and the weather on those three years was particularly bad, it is noted. So whilst I think on the one hand it suggests that Norfolk was no longer seen as an attractive destination for the, the top sides to come and test themselves against, that wasn't particularly important to the people of Norwich. The, uh, the cricket was still, oh, and indeed of Norfolk and Suffolk, who, who made up the gates. Uh, indeed, in as late as 1896, uh, National Press notes that the attendances are very good for a festival of this sort, and that spectators were often rewarded with good play. Uh, even the Yarmouth Mercury, which is usually very pessimistic, was forced to note that in 1891, a very fair crowd came to see Northumberland when in very unfavourable conditions. And the EDP claims that over the bank holidays of 1891, 92 and 93, an excess of 1,500 spectators were present, which is the highest that had ever been seen at Lakenham at the week at that point. And indeed, the, uh, the quality of the cricket, although it might be less, was uh, generally of a much closer nature. There were several games in 1892 and 93, won by only a couple of runs in either direction. Uh, 
one that seemed to attract particular notice in the London papers was the last two Cambridge batsmen in 1893 both being bowled for a duck so that they lost by one run. And towards the end of the century, we sort of break this monopoly of uh, lower quality sides coming and Middlesex return for the first time in about 15 years. Uh, MCC send a strong squad and this week, on the Friday of this week, sees the highest attendance that the festival's ever seen. So it suggests that there is still capacity for cricket to grow in interest levels in the county. And even though in 1898 the results were particularly bad, this didn't stop many of the best families in the county from coming and uh, attending the festival. And indeed the whole thing as an event seems to have grown massively since it was originally instituted. We can see uh, they have several bands now playing on the days. There is, as we can see, the uh, amount of trains at the bottom now goes almost as far away as uh, kind of North Norfolk, South Suffolk. So the event is obviously drawing in very large numbers of people uh, from all over the eastern counties, I think really expanding from its sort of originally Norfolk-based focus. And I think that's like really the main feature of this period, that although Norfolk's ambitions may have lessened, the week itself has grown in importance as it becomes kind of a hub and a, a showcase for cricket in the eastern counties. I think it's, it's impossible to argue that the, the galvanising effect that the first few festivals had on Norfolk cricket just seems to continue and run on. Uh, although there are constant complaints about the, from the local press about the amount raised from the festival, the spect numbers of spectators are always praised and the organisational abilities of the various committees are said to be of, of a very excellent quality. Indeed, they're, they're often described as thoughtful and enterprising by the sympathetic evening news, who uh, regularly praise them for paying out of their own pocket to cover the expenses of the festival and keep putting it on for cricket enthusiasts in the county. Uh, indeed, in 1898, despite what we're told is rather awful weather over the whole week, some of the best cricket played in the eastern counties was seen here this season. So, uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say that although the festival was no longer no longer a showcase for Norfolk's ability, it was a showcase perhaps for cricket itself, for, for enthusiasts in the region. And uh, indeed, by this point, it seemed like the, the, the festival had settled into the routine of the club with a, a healthy reserve of over £300 by the turn of the century and the continued free use of the Lincoln and Ground, it seemed that the festival would continue as an annual event regardless of the level at which Norfolk were playing. And I think this kind of newfound spirit of uh, showcase and spectacle is really summed up at the turn of the century in the 1900 festival. The uh, 20th iteration uh, as well as the regulars of Hertfordshire and Cambridgeshire, ended with the first West Indian tour of England. And there was so much uh, excitement that the week was actually extended to 10 days for this particular festival uh, in order to give people sufficient time to uh, book their tickets and, and arrive. And 
I mean, we can see there was a lot of excitement for uh, for this particular game, given that they'd only played three other minor county sides in a combined eleven. It was uh, quite widely regarded as a organisational coup for the for the festival to have obtained their services on their final game. Uh, we can see in the East Anglian Daily Times that they they suggest that the match will be very lively. And Thetford and Watton Times suggests that this match being organised in Norwich symbolises the, in their words, complete revival of cricket in the county. So uh, I feel like we would not say a few words about the game that was played against the West Indies. Uh, having come down on the Wednesday and stayed at the Maid's Head Hotel, they came to Lakenham and forced a sensational collapse by the home side, bowling them out for 117 and 32 respectively. The uh, Fast bowler Floatwoods restricted sorry, Norwich to 10 runs in 30 minutes of play and took seven wickets. And in the second innings, Norwich, being all out for 32 runs, had to face Tommy Burton, who took eight for nine in a mere 10.4 overs. I think much to the uh, excitement of the local press, and I would assume the uh, local spectators. Uh, indeed, this particular second innings display took a lot of column inches being described as perhaps the best display of bowling ever to be seen within the county and ended with uh, the West Indian team leaving to a very warm reception from a very large crowd at Lakenham and as I say this attracted Ips uh, attention from the Ipswich and Suffolk papers who normally have very little to do with Norfolk cricket and indeed took up a whole two columns in sporting life which as far as I'm aware, it had never happened for a Norfolk game up to this point. So uh, I think in some ways, and this is purely personal opinion, but I think this game sort of symbolises the coming full circle, as it were, of the festival. What really kind of came to life with Norfolk beating a very strong side in 1882, the England eleven, is kind of now reversed with a very heavy but very noteworthy defeat and it really sums up just the spirit of perhaps entertainment and spectacle that the festival was starting to take on and which I think we can still see today uh, certainly the last few times I've been to Horsford it's not been first class cricket but it's always been very exciting and it's always the biggest event for, for many miles around in terms of in terms of cricket so uh, I think with this in mind, that was why I decided to leave the festival at 1900, as um, it really shows the new, the new form it had taken on in perhaps capturing the imagination rather than being a tool for the progression of the Norfolk County side. I think uh, what, what started perhaps as, as something to serve a purpose had become an ingrained and inextricable part of the, the club's annual calendar. And more than that, it was probably the biggest draw for, for cricket fans for many miles around. I mean, there wasn't a, a comparable festival in Chelmsford for over a decade. Essex didn't organise the South End Festival until 1906 and Colchester until even after that. So if you're looking for a, a real sustained display of cricket, I think Norwich really had the monopoly on that. And what they did in 1900 really showed that that was that was what the festival was becoming.
um, I suppose that is kind of the end of my little narrative of the first 20 years of the Norfolk Cricket Festival, then known as the Norwich Cricket Week. Uh, if anyone has any questions, I'll be happy to try and answer them. Was cricket a very popular sport in the 1800s? I would say in Norfolk it was very popular as a village sport, but the, the county side uh, in its various forms had struggled kind of long up until at least the 1870s. And I, I don't think, and I may well be wrong here, but I've always had the impression that the county side was not as well regarded perhaps by village enthusiasts as their local teams were. How much would a professional have been earning in the last decade of the 19th century? That is an exceptionally good question, and although I cannot answer you specifically, I can tell you it was more than Norfolk would have been able to pay them if they were of a particularly high calibre. But I am afraid off the top of my head I don't know what the going would they was. Would they be employed on a game-by-game -game basis, or did they have like a contract for the season? By and large, they would have been uh, on a seasonal basis. Mm. So uh, you would have had your professional players coming in for several games at a time. Yes, sir? You mentioned Northamptonshire. I remember correctly, we played them home and away one year. We got 1,500 spectators here, which was good for us. And they got 8,000. Oh. Which is perhaps why they became a first-class county, and we never did. We've got a big area, a big population, but it's a long way to go from King's Lynn or Amsterdam to get to the festival. I don't think we got the crowds that would ever justify us returning to first-class status. And yet, in 1891, Somerset got first-class status based on the county town. It was barely a third of the size of I don't know why that happened. I really must look into that at some point. It's a question I've asked myself for a long time. And the fact is, it did happen in a very rural county with a very small county town. Perhaps they had a very powerful benefactor. Um, it's what I've always assumed. Yeah. Yes. That don't yeah, actually make a lot of difference. So why didn't the common family? They were social benefactors of various kinds, mainly social benefactors, mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, it, it clearly would have needed a major financial input. Um, the two people who could have done it seems to be in knowledge at that time. Possibly the breweries, but the Commons would have supported breweries. Um, the Commons and what was still quite small but substantial insurance company that was under Yes, oh, just, sorry. Just of interest, the first week of August was chosen because that was the week the factory shut, was it? So that it could be attended by factory workers? Is that the reason for the first week of August? Uh, I suspect. Uh, the factory oh, shut for a fortnight, sorry, didn't they? Did I say the first week? I meant to say the, the bank holiday week of August. Oh, well, well, that well, was well, the first, well, isn't it? Yes. Oh, I, I suspect so, um, then, yes, yes that, that is. They need to not be at work to be able to attend anyway, didn't they? Yes. yes. Well, linked with that, do, do you have, because again, I, I, I'm, I've got something I've thought about but never really done anything about researching. Um, do you have any idea of this thousand pound crowd, fifteen hundred crowd, of what the social composition of that was? Yeah. You talked about elite families. Yeah, we knew. I, I, I know they were there, 
But linking the factual, with the factual question, was, was Joe, who worked at Howlett's and White's for 15 weeks a year, dragged up yeah. to Lakeman? Um, Instead of going to the coast for their family? Which most probably still couldn't afford it. Um, but do you know anything about social composition? Uh, I can only make inferences. Again, this is something that I would love to have had a bit more information about, but my my inference would be the fact that uh, kind of fashionable people aren't mentioned until sort of the late 1880s. I would take to mean that they weren't there earlier, so perhaps there was a shift towards the kind of the middle and upper classes at the end of the decade, but in terms of hard evidence, I'm afraid. I know in other cases, like the old Scarborough Festival, the town would close, I think, at that, at that time, and there would be you know, working class people would be, would yeah. be there. So I would imagine it would be the case here, whether it followed the town's feast week, used to call it in Yorkshire, when, when the town would close, or whether that was created around the festival. Or, or that would come. Yeah, just linking with other, other sort of notions of festivals, I mean, Canterbury, again, the smallest town in the village, um, a county centre, yes, but they'd had, they've had their week for the 1840s. Yeah, 1840s. So there was a model there, um, which I presume was successful, or was that financially underwritten? I, I can say, I do know that, that that was one of the sort of the oldest models, but yes, again, whether that was. There's always been a little bit of a geographical thing with cricket, and there still is. I mean, I think with the complaints now of counties like Somerset might be, they could play for for a London county, maybe Middlesex or Surrey, might get more noticed by selectors. Um, and maybe there was this, you know, a southern a, a southern emphasis on the in, in the professional game. Jubilee Grace played for was it Gloucestershire and, and Surrey or something. I wouldn't have far north here became. <laughs> Um, Did he? Yes. Oh, did he? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Right. Can I just point out that it's, um, ten years old, about a decade on from that, um, old Buckingham had been country house cricket, and they attracted so many top names there because they had a that day's version of Kerry Packard would get in if he wanted to, and the crowds there were something like they were getting there. Really? Oh, I, I must have I was unaware of that. They had their four Australian test side there, playing his 11, and he had his own professional, like Archie McLaren, who played for England, professional. McLaren was an amateur, she skipped at England. But yes, if Robinson put his money into Norfolk rather than into Old Buckham, and it might have been almost viable that go for first class status, but he didn't move to Old Buckham until 1906. As you say, the Aussies turned up in 1921 and he died very shortly afterwards. That was their chance gone. I think that just really shows the importance of the would have. He wasn't quite by the cricket establishment either. He wasn't establishment, no, he was Nouveau Rich and looked down upon. But he, and he wasn't And he wasn't Australian. <laughs> <laughs> as well as the 21 Aussies test team, he got the 1912 South Africans 
So while his money was around, good players wouldn't come to Northwood. The problem is we don't know how many spectators there were because there was never a gate. It's free admission. I reckon there maybe only 10,000 to watch the girls in 1921. I can recommend a very good book on this one. I probably wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> so talking of gates, three shillings and six shillings quite uh, a large amount of a summer's week wage in those days. I mean, it would have been not inconsiderable, but I suppose, I, I suspect for a whole day's entertainment, it's comparable to kind of other, other means of entertainment available. So, um, wickets were pitched at 11.30 and then, depending on the weather and the light, it sort of be there until the early evening. You had to finish at 6.30, so you had time to dress for dinner. Ah, 6.30 <laughs> then would be the cut-off. But Is there anything else? Or? 1900 is a gloomy place to stop. <laughs> Norfolk didn't win any championship matches in 1900 and 1901, and they were so fed up that they withdrew from the minor county championship for a couple of years so that their two new professional bowlers could qualify by residence. <laughs> after that, things got a bit better. We won the title in 1905, 1910. 1913, and they're all serious ideas of first-class status, but that was under the captaincy of George Rakes, on whom another vote has been made. Also, I thought I'd jump off just before things got really bad, but perhaps that'll be the subject of my next one. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you all for coming